Hi, my name is Stephen Bryant, and I'm the researcher behind the RelativityChallenge.com website. And today, I would like to walk you through a paper that I presented at this year's 15th Annual Conference of the Natural Philosophy Alliance that was performed in conjunction with the American Association for the Advancement of Science. This conference was held this year on April 11th at the University of New Mexico, and the paper um, that I'm going to walk through today is basically a summary of a paper that's going to come out in the April edition of Galilean Electrodynamics, and it's entitled Revisiting the Michelson-Morley Experiment to Reveal an Earth Orbital Velocity of 30 Kilometers per Second. I hope today that as we go through the presentation, I'm able to leave you with an understanding of what the experiment was about, how the original analysis was performed, and to convince you of an alternative way of performing the analysis that reveals this um, known velocity of 30 kilometers per second. So the agenda that we're going to go through today, we're going to begin by walking through the conceptual foundation. So we're actually going to build the Michelson-Morley experiment graphically. Then we're going to look at the analysis that was performed, basically how did they come up with their equations and how did they use them. And then we're going to look at an alternative way of, of performing the analysis. And we're going to complete the conversation by looking at some of the implications and conclusions of this result. So let's begin with the conceptual foundation. Lorenz, who's one of the founders of modern physics, says, as Maxwell first remarked, and it follows from a very simple calculation, the time required by a ray of light to travel from a point A to a point B and back to A must vary when the two points together undergo a displacement without carrying the ether with them. Now, for those of you who have been listening to the podcast series or reading the material on my website, you'll see that this is what I call an incomplete coordinate system. So we have two points that are moving, but the transport medium, in this case, the ether, is not. We have an alternative. We can revise Lorenz's words, and we can say, uh, we can make a small change. In this case, we will begin to carry the ether with us. And when the ether is carried along with the two points, this is what we call a complete coordinate system. Now, the Michelson-Morley experiment is an experiment in an incomplete coordinate system. So when we look at the mathematics today, that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, this by itself um, is a fairly easy example to understand if we can make it concrete. So in order to do that, I'm going to take some change. I'm going to make some changes where he says, for example, a ray of light. I'm going to make this something that we can grab onto, perhaps a person or a cat. And when we say the ether, I'm going to make this the ground. What this allows me to do is to create an example that we will make very concrete that we can agree upon. And then we will come back and make it a little bit more abstract so that we can use that to evaluate the experiment. So we're going to replace ray of light with a person, ether with the ground. Now, what we have built here are two coordinate systems. The first coordinate system is the road that's represented by the blue background, and then we've put a bus on top of it, and we're just looking down from a top view. Now, what we do is we put two objects at the rear right-hand corner of the bus. Uh, graphically, this will be the origin, 
And we're going to put those objects in motion. We're going to ask it one object to go to the front of the bus and come back to the rear. We're going to ask the other object to go to the left side and then come back. So we're going to, in effect, get them to oscillate. Let's look what this, let's see what this looks like. So both objects are moving forward at velocity w. Uh, we can create we can create an equation that tells us how long it's going to take for that for one of the objects to reach the other end. Similarly, we can create an equation that says after he's reached that other end, how long does it take him to get back to his starting point? In this case, the right tail light. Um, meanwhile, the other object is still progressing forward, hasn't quite reached the front yet. Eventually, it does reach the front, and we have an equation that tells us how long it's going to take for that to happen. And, of course, our goal was to make this oscillate, so we have an equation for how long it's going to take now for that object to return to the rear corner of the bus. So in each case, what we've done is we've created a, an equation that tells us how long it takes for something to oscillate when that something is moving on uh, a ground or an ether that's not being transported with the points that we're asking it to bounce between. So one of the things that I'd like to do here is I'd like to start to, to move it back into how this particular diagram is associated with the Michelson-Morley experiment. And the first thing we need to do is we need to say, well, the velocity of, of the object is not how fast the person or the cat can walk. It's really how fast is that ray of light moving. And in this case, we replace W with C. And the other thing we need to do is we need to extend our our bus size. So that way, the amount of, of distance, physical distance between point A and B, between the front and the back of the bus, is the same as between the two sides of the bus or points A and C. Now you can see in this particular diagram that while the lines have changed in their length perhaps, the uh, equations are the same. So we just need to look at the equations. In this case, since we know that the path along the x-axis and the y-axis the y are the same, we can change them to length L. And this gives us our core equations that we will use for the Michelson-Morley experiment. What I'd like to do here is walk you through a demonstration or simulation that shows this at play. So let's do that for a moment. So as a demonstration, I would like to walk you through an example. Imagine this box is the moving bus that we had uh, from the presentation, and the balls represent the endpoint. So we're going to have, we have a dog, or excuse me, we have a person and a cat, and they're both going to go to the respective balls, one at the front of the bus and one at the side of the bus. And we're going to see how long it takes them to go to the basketballs and return and come back to the origin. So in this case, we can see that they both go out, they both return, and they both took 162. Now, this is with the bus not moving. Let's look at that one more time. You can see they go out, they touch the ball, they reverse, and they both return at the exact same time. Now, of course, Michelson and Morley assumes that if there's an ether, um, then it should take them longer because, again, they're on the outside of the bus, as represented by their feet here, it, it takes them longer if the bus is moving to do what we've asked them to do. So let's put the bus in motion and see what happens. 
So the first person hits the origin and stop, and then the cat does. So what we have here are the shapes that we've shown before. Let me remove all the objects so you can see the track. You can see the blue line represents the, the oscillation of going uh, along the y-axis, and then the combination of the, the uh, horizontal blue line and the yellow line represents the oscillation for the cat that was moving along the x-axis. And this gives us the same shape that we've been looking at. And this line here, right in the middle between uh, where the triangle hits, where the first person uh, completed their oscillation, and where the cat completed uh, its oscillation, that represents displacement. And that is what allows us to compute our velocity is by understanding how big that displacement is vis-a-vis -vis how fast the objects are moving and how long our x's and our y-axis are. Okay, now that we've completed the demonstration, let's continue on. So one of the things we can do with respect to the Michelson-Morley experiment is we're not going to just go to the front of the bus or to the side of the bus. We're actually going to put mirrors there, and those are represented by the diamond shapes. And we're going to have a light source origin. Um, we're going to represent that by the red circle that we're going to put at point A. And we're just going to make sure that they're attached to some sort of platform, which we're going to call arms, and those are the red lines. This, in effect, is a device that we will call an interferometer. We're simply going to shine the light from A to either point C or B. It's going to be reflected back towards A. Now, with this being the case, we no longer need the bus. So we can take away the bus, and what remains is the model and the mathematics for the Michelson-Morley interferometer experiment. Now, a couple of things to know about the experiment, and that is, as you saw in the simulation, when the bus is not moving the, through the ether, the amount of time uh, to either go along the x-axis or the, the y-axis is the same. However, when it is moving, we would expect to see the points not arrive at the same place. This is called a phase shift, and this is something that we would like to measure using this device. Now, unfortunately, a phase shift, we would really need to know the timing or something like that in order to detect it properly. What Michelson and Morley did, since there's no timing uh, no clock on the device. They actually rotated the interferometer uh, to get different measurements. And through that, they were able to derive th their actual results. And I thought this is a very ingenious way of conducting an experiment. So based on their particular experiments and the math that went through it, let's see what they found. So first off, we look at what they computed as their displacement equation. Basically, if we are moving through an ether at 30 kilometers per second, what would they expect the expected result to look like? So they, they have this equation to help create their answer. And what they found is that we expected to find 30 kilometers per second. And using their equations, they were only able to account for 7 kilometers per second. So this is much lower than the 30 that they had anticipated. So what this means is that they were not able to support the, the ether-based model that was proposed by Frenet. Um, and let's look at their data in a little bit more detail here. What I've actually done here is I've used 
the Excel and the mathematics of a modern computer to create the actual result. And we come out with about eight kilometers per second. Um, this is, allows us to do an apples to apples comparison when we look at the revised experimental results. Um, but one thing that I think is very interesting and why we should care about this is because right now, as the Michelson-Morley experiment stands, it represents a crisis. The Michelson-Morley experiment is one of the foundational experiments in special relativity. And it is such because it found that uh, there was not an ether at 30 kilometers per second, which we would need to have. However, as you can see on this particular slide, the Michelson-Morley results don't support zero from a statistical standpoint either. And the only way that you get that is to discount their actual data and say that it was experimental error. So what this means is we need to explain the Michelson-Morley experiment better than we have in the past, regardless of whether you are a supporter of special relativity or a supporter of an ether-based model. Because as it stands right now, the Michelson-Morley experiment doesn't support either. So when we get a result that doesn't quite fit what we were expecting, one of the things we have to do is look at it. Now, in computer science or with major projects, you, you call this, this review a post-mortem. And what we're going to do here is just ask a number of questions to see, are we on the right track or did we miss anything? So the first question is, is the approach sound and rational? Um, yes, it is sound and rational. Uh, we walk through the derivation together. We walk through the model together. Can't find anything wrong with that. Does the math make sense? Absolutely. The math does make sense. There doesn't seem to be any problems in how Michelson and Morley approach the mathematics. Do multiple people reach the same conclusions? This is actually one of the easier questions to answer because for the past hundred years, people have been looking at the Michelson-Morley experiment as a cornerstone of special relativity, which means you've had a lot of eyeballs looking at this problem and a lot of people reaching the same conclusion. Last is, do we believe that this device that they've come up with, if it was working properly, could it detect a 30 kilometer per second Earth orbital velocity? And again, here, as with many in, in the special relativity community, I believe the answer is yes. It should be able to detect a 30 kilometer velocity. So when we look at this, on the surface, it looks like everything about the, the experiment has been set up and performed properly. So this leads us to a critical question. So if everything checks out, what does it mean? Well, A, it could mean that it's valid and we just can't go back to an ether-based model, at least not the type that was, um, that was assumed by Frenet. Second, we could say the experiment just doesn't work. It's not giving us any answers, either a Frenet-based ether model or a Einstein type uh, special relativity model. Or we can say, you know what? We haven't asked the right question yet. And this would be a short presentation if I gave you any answer other than C, which is we haven't asked the right question yet. So if we haven't asked the right question yet, what is that question? And the question is this, if we knew with 100% certainty that the Earth was moving through an ether with an Earth orbital velocity of 30 kilometers per second, would the measurements obtained using the interferometer and analyzed using the Michelson and Morley analytical model 
produce an actual result of 30 kilometers per second? And this answer may surprise you. The answer is no, it would not. Which is puzzling, because on the previous slide, we just said, the experiment makes conceptual sense, the mathematics sounds right, and we believe the device could detect 30 kilometers per second, and yet we're saying with these known facts, it would not. So we need to answer why that's the case. And the answer is, it's because it's a counting problem. And there's three things that we need to true up in order to get the Michelson-Morley experiment to work. The first is units of frequency need to be uh, rationalized and, and trued up. And the way to approach this or a way to think about this is what I call absolute versus relative measurements. And we'll talk about that in a moment. The second is understanding what the units of a fringe are. And third is the size of the actual and the expected results. So for the first one, when we look at absolute and relative measurements, the first thing I'd like to do is just have you think about a particular problem. And that is this. Imagine that you and I are separated by 300 million meters, uh, which is the amount of distance that light travels in one second. And let's assume for a moment that I shine a flashlight at you. That flashlight travels at a certain frequency um, and it reaches your eyes and you see that light. Now, because of the distance between us, if I was to ask the question, how many cycles are there between you and me? We would just ask, well, what's the frequency? Let's call it F. Well, that's how many cycles there are between you and me. Now, if you're holding up a mirror and you reflect that light back to me, we can ask the same question, how many cycles are there between you, between your mirror and my eyes? And again, the answer is F. Um, so when you add the F that it took, to, the F number of cycles to get to you, and then the F number of cycles to get to me, the answer is 2F. But we have to remember, it took a second to get to you and a second to get back to me. So when we talk about 2F, we're no longer talking in Hertz. If we're gonna talk in Hertz, we have to divide the number by two and call it F, which makes perfect sense. So anyone who's comfortable dealing with frequency, for example, will know that when we add frequencies in this nature, you actually have to divide them by two to keep your terms and your units in Hertz. So that's the first thing we need to do. Now, why is this important? It's important when we, when we look at the Michelson-Morley experiment because it is a frequency-based experiment. They're taking light at a certain frequency and they're measuring the shift in wavelength, the shift in, in, in um, based on the movement through, through the ether. Now, one thing I'd like to do is help you understand the concept of relative measurement and absolute measurement, because the interferometer actually measures relative movement. And to give you an example, let's say that I'm staying in a hotel and at the, the front door of the hotel is where I enter. And there's just one long hallway and off to the right hand side are all the rooms numbered sequentially from one to 20. And I happen to see you standing out in front of your room. And I say, hey, it's really good to see you. Uh, do you know where my room is? And you say, yeah, it's three down from me. And you point down. So down the hall, three more room, three more rooms. I go there. I'm able to find where I'm at now. One thing that you don't know or that we can't answer is if someone said, Steve, what is your room number? 
Well, I don't know. I just know I'm three down from Bob or Sally or whoever you, you happen to be. Now, the other way that this could work is I, I go into the hotel and I see a different friend and I say, hey, do you know which room I'm in? And that person may yell back, yes, you're in room 12. Well, then that's pretty easy. I can always go back to the front door and start counting rooms and I can find out where I'm at. Now, what this means is that we have a measurement of something that's absolute. If you give me a starting point, in this case, the front door of the hotel, or it's relative if it happens to be from where we are standing right now. And so when we have our reference line, for example, it can be at 11 because we're measuring in absolute terms, or it can just be here is where this line is now. I don't know the exact number, but this is where this line is. So when we show up a second line, we can, in absolute terms, we can say that line is 14. We don't even care about the reference line. But when we're measuring something in relative terms, we say, well, this is three greater than the last thing that I looked at. Likewise, if it's shorter, I can get an absolute number, but in relative terms, I would say, well, this is one less than my reference line. Now, if you know what your reference line is, then you can add that and do the math. Um, but if you don't, all you're able to say is whether you're greater or less than. And in this case, you get a shift to the right or a shift to the left, which is something that we physically observed in the movement and motion of the interferometer. Now, the other thing why this is important is that you can see here what the actual results are. But the thing that's really important is when you combine the relative values in this way, you actually compensate for that first thing that I mentioned in terms of counting in hertz or cycles per second instead of cycles per two seconds. And that's very important to make sure we get our units properly. The second thing I want to do is make sure we understand the behavior of a fringe. A fringe is an optical event that happens when you get one wave wavelength of, of light, let's call it, and you've split it and you, you combine that with a second it, it, uh, wavelength of light that is basically 180 degrees out of sync or out of phase with the first. And you get bands of light and these bands are called fringes. You can think of it mentally by putting your two fingers together, one on top of the other so that they're pointing at one another. And wherever your, your fingers are pointing, um, you, you would take half that distance and say that's the center of your fringe. So if they're pointing right on top of each other, clearly the middle of your fringe is right in line with your fingers. Now, if you moved your fingers two, uh, two inches apart, let's call it, um, where is the center of your fringe? Is it your left finger that's pointing up or your, your right finger that's pointing down, for example, or is it in the middle? So again, a two inch shift will result in a fringe that only moves one inch. Now this is depicted uh, graphically on this particular slide where you can see a two inch shift in the, in the circle moving from um, the square box on the left where it says B to the square box on, on the right where it says B. Um, that distance is double the amount of observed shift which is represented by the letter A. And the third thing we have to do is we have to look at actual versus expected results. Let's assume for a moment that I want it to, to be a member of your, your uh, running team and 
I would have to prove myself to you. And he said, Steve, you can be a member as long as you can run around the block in eight minutes. So I say, fine, I can do that. And you say, well, I need to have my observers out there to watch you. So off I go. The first leg I, I run in a minute and 45 seconds. The next leg I run in two minutes. The next leg I run in two minutes and 30 seconds. And the next leg I run in three minutes. So I come back to you and you say, and I say, hey, I'm running. I'm running a little slower. Yeah, I, I did. But you said eight minutes and my worst leg was, was three minutes. So can I be on your team? And the answer is no. Why? Because the, I shouldn't compare each leg that I've run to your total. I either need to look at your total and take some averages, or I need to total up each of my four numbers and compare them to what you were expecting me to do in total. Now, this is important for the Michelson-Morley experiment because they created an expected result that was for a 90-degree turn of their device, yet they captured individual actual results every 22.5 degrees. So they have four actual results for one 90 degree rotation of the device. And it's real simple. We either need to divide our expected result by four, or we need to sum up our actual results. So what does this mean? It means that we have to make some adjustments to the analytical model when we have a device that's going to return measurements that are relative based versus absolute. So those adjustments are number one, we have to divide by two to account for expressing frequency in Hertz. We need to divide by two to reflect the fact that what we observe in a fringe is half of the overall, half of the total displacement. And number three, we need to make sure that our measurement uh, expected results are the same for um, either expected, our measurements are the same for either expected results or for actual results. When we do that, we get a revised equation, but more importantly, we get an answer that is much closer to what we expected to, to see. We got 32 kilometers per second and we expected 30. Now, this by itself is not a big deal, because if you give me any number, I can scale that number into any other number just by multiplying it by some factor, and I can come up with some sort of description or belief as to why that is the case. But what makes this analysis that much stronger is that a gentleman named Miller in 1933 repeated the Michelson-Morley experiment. He changed a number of things on the device. He did. He performed it at a different location, at a different altitude, with different measurement intervals, with a different arm length, and a different frequency of light. So he changed a number of factors in order to try and make his experiment better. Now, in 1933, he got a slightly bigger result than Michelson and Morley, but still nowhere close to support an ether-based model as defined by Frenet. Yet here, when we reanalyze Miller's work in the exact same way, taking into account that it should have been performed using a relative set of equations versus an absolute set of equations, he got 30 kilometers per second right on the dot. So that gives some support that this model, this analytical approach does make sense and requires a little bit more investigation. Here is a little bit of detail of the analysis of the Michelson and Morley data. You can see here that it, uh, it returns 32.2 with, with a uh, standard deviation of about uh, two and a half kilometers per second. 
And you can see graphically what this means that the expected result and the actual result do line up. And this does support the ether based analysis as supported as proposed by Frenet. So let's look at some implications and conclusions. One of the things I want to talk about is something that we talked about earlier on one of the, the, the slides, and that is when we look at the experiment, everything makes sense. So when you look at the analytics and how we've set up the, the, the experiment, everything makes sense, but we have to recognize we were thinking in absolute terms. And from that standpoint, it was right. Yet, when we look at the operation of the interferometer, it is designed as a relative measurement device. And again, it makes perfect sense. So conceptually, everything makes sense. Unfortunately, it's not an apples to apples comparison when we take our device that is going to return relative measurements, relative results, and compare that to something that we were expecting to be absolute. So what we've done here today is we've revised the equations to account for their relative nature. And that allows us to perform the analysis that we've done. There's also a box missing here, though, that gives us an opportunity to construct a new class of Michelson-Morley experiments, one that is based on absolute measurements. And this might be done using modern technology that we have available at our disposal today uh, that they may not have had over 100 years ago. The key thing that I'd like you to take away from this slide, however, is that the proper analysis occurs when you use the equations and the devices from the same columns. Now, an, another implication that I'd like to walk you through is that if an ether is supported, then the things that we've been talking about on the podcast and on my website about the model of complete and incomplete coordinate systems could be used for all transport mediums. And so basically, you could use the mathematics regardless of whether we're talking about sound traveling on the air, water, uh, a wave of water, a wave of light. It also supports the notion of other transport mediums such as a quantum transport medium or a gravitational transport medium. All you have to do is replace W with the velocity of that particular wave taking into account all the different things that affect that velocity. So for example, if you're talking about a water wave, the depth of the water, of course, would be a factor in calculating the velocity of the wave. So as a summary of key findings, the key thing to remember is that we have to take into account absolute versus relative measurements. The interferometer is a relative-based measuring device, which means we have to use relative-based equations. Once we do that, we find that we get the proper expected result. In this case, we expected 30, we got 32, and that is statistically supported and gives us experimental convergence, which is a key thing that we would look for in any experiment, it gives us experimental convergence with Miller's 1933 experiment. So I want to thank you for joining me today to walk through a paper that I have coming out in the Galilean Electrodynamics Journal on revisiting the Michelson and Morley experiment to reveal an Earth orbital velocity of 30 kilometers per second. Please feel free to visit the website www.relativitychallenge.com for more information. Uh, I have some summary information on the website as well as all of the papers that I, I have written. 
Um, and also feel free to drop by the blog, which is blog.relativitychallenge.com. I have a number of podcasts out there as well as the conference presentations. And you can subscribe to me by typing in relativitychallenge.com or Stephen Bryant into iTunes. So once again, thank you for joining me today. I hope that you'll come back again soon. Until then, be well.